Welcome to Season 2 of Song Chronicles, Episode 2. My guest today has made a living behind the scenes, making musicians sound great, whether it's in the studio or on TV, in a tiny club, a theater, or the Royal Albert Hall. My guest is the one and only Robin Daynard. Robin is a New York native and started doing sound at the legendary venue CBGB's as a sub in 1979 before hired on staff. In 1980, he took a 40-hour-a-week janitor's job at RPM Studios so he could learn about studio engineering and wound up being mentored by the legendary producer Phil Ramone. Robin's mantra, acquire knowledge and be open-minded about how to use it, has proven virtuous throughout his diverse four-decade career as a sought-after producer and engineer. He'll tell us about working front of house sound on international tours for the likes of Suzanne Vega, Laurie Anderson, The Blue Nile, and more. Working for KCRW's benefit concert series and releasing a producer as artist record. Since it opened in 2015, Robin has been the production manager at LA's acclaimed Terragram Ballroom. In any job he's doing, Robin says he strives to make it so the artists can have fun on their gig. Please enjoy my conversation with Robin Daynar. I'm excited to talk to you because I don't know when the last time you did an extensive interview, but we know each other well, so there's a lot of details to fill in. Cool. Maybe we should start early, like Stuyvesant and in school and growing up when you were living in New York to start working at CBGB's. You were a normal New York street kid playing pranks, all of that, and you loved music. Yes to everything above. Stuyvesant was amazing. I came out of there with a ton of knowledge I wouldn't have had from another high school, but the real music beginnings were actually in Albany, New York, where I went to college at Albany State. It was a crazy time. At the beginning there, I used to go visit college radio DJs after they got off work at two in the morning. When I was a freshman, I heard a jam going on in a room and I met the bass player and I went to see his band. They were called Neon Park. They were not your standard college weekend band. They would play Captain Beefheart. They would play Zappa. They would play Yes. They played standard rock also. They played Blondie. They played all these different things. And it was early Blondie, actually. But... They then started to write original music, and it was my first encounter with people that were writing original music, and then later on going to New York to play at places like CBGB's. They got signed by Miles Copeland to IRS. They changed their name from The Units to The Fear of Strangers. That was the band that had come out of Neon Park, the college jam band. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, commercial radio stations started playing alternative music. And it was a little more accessible than the really left of center college radio DJs that I was meeting. So we had basically this amazing scene. There was a band called Blotto that had a big hit with I Want to Be a Lifeguard. And then my friends started making real noise and I made trips to New York with them. And that was really when I first started going to CBGB's regularly as a punter, mm -hmm. which led to a lot. 
So you just asked for a job? Well, before I asked for a job, I was doing freelance work there periodically. And I had friends that worked at CBGB's and I met Hilly and we hit it off immediately. So I would spend a lot of days there just playing reggae tracks on cassette. And the only effect that we had was a Roland Space Echo tape delay machine because all the other stuff hadn't really been invented yet. Yes. So I would sit there in the afternoons sending snare drums to the delay and it would do, you know, the standard the reggae stuff. And it was a way of me learning how to use that device and also hearing the room. And I would crank it up and Hilly would be in the front happy. So as I did more and more fill-in work there, I became a staff member there. And then after a while, I became the only staff member there. What years were you there? I was there as a punter, probably starting around 76 to see shows. I did my first freelance gigs there, I think late 78. And then I was subbing middle to late 79. So late 79. And, you know, you're really known for vocals, like being just the best at vocals. How did you study or come to know how to get good vocal sounds starting off at CBGBs, where people were mostly just like just making a racket? It's an interesting way that people don't often ask me about CBGBs. So that's actually a good question. It was very often hard to get a vocal to cut there, and very often there was a screaming vocal, depending on the nature of the music. It was a constant test, and I can't really define how my style of that evolved, except that I cared a lot about the vocals. I was never a person that just pumped the kick drum in the vocal. I, I was very band-oriented, but the vocals were always important to me. So. My focus was there. I think the main focus for me on that career-wise began as I started doing studio work also, because in 1980, I took a job as a janitor at RPM Studios in New York. I was spending 40 hours a week doing the janitor's job, but another 80 hours a week learning how to plug in microphones. Willie Schillinger is a guy that a lot of people in our industry would know. He was there with Marshall Crenshaw cutting demos and Ken McKim, who ended up working at Bearsville. These were all people that I was learning from as I was a janitor. And when I first got promoted, Phil Ramon took over my studio for a year. So I was learning from the best right at the get-go and accumulating knowledge, but vocals were already a priority. Yeah. You know, there's a theme in everyone I'm talking to, when they talk about the beginning of their career, it's always, I learned from other people and put myself in a position where I could do that. Not having an attitude, not saying things that would drive people away from me, and not doing anything to alienate people who had something to teach me. And so it seems to be an ongoing theme just to be on the scene in any kind of way, being willing to be a worker bee, whether it's doing janitorial work or making coffee, you're in the room, and then it is this tradition that gets handed down and it's a secret and you have to show that you're worthy of learning the secret and people, it's not like there's one secret. Of course, we know there's many, many of them and then we invent our own. But yeah, the world of audio and microphones is a club if you wanna be in, you have to show all the other worker bees that you have respect for the gear, respect for the talent, 
respect for the person who knows more than you. And that's something that you will teach other people and that you yourself did. That was actually the beauty of being a janitor. I wanted to become a janitor in a recording studio when I was 15. I didn't know as much about the music before I went to college and when I started college, but I had something hungry there and my parents stopped me from going to finish school. And the business sense that came out of college has been mega valuable. But I was really lucky to be a janitor first because it taught me a lot of what you just described. Half of what they were watching was if I knew how to conduct myself with the people. I was representing our studio and that was a priority where I worked and um, it never went away. And yes, I'm really happy to be giving that to people now. It feels amazing. So yeah, yeah, that's really good. Yeah. And where do people learn how to behave properly, you know, if they don't get that information at home? You know, maybe just wanting it bad enough is enough of a carrot on a stick, really, because trust is the key. It's the second one worker does something that makes the staff feel that that person is not to be trusted, they're out. That's it. You, you know? want to hear a funny story? Yeah, I sure do. I want all about those stories. <laughs> it goes both ways. And this was one of the best days. I was working on a Peter, Paul and Mary album yeah. with Jim Boyer producing and engineering. And we were doing vocal overdubs. And I was really good at punching back then on tape. We used to punch in and punch out manually. And I had to do a lot of it. And I was getting calls a lot because of that. But there was one day where I punched on Mary's vocals and I cut her breath in between words. <gasps> I chopped that a little bit. And Jim looked at me and he said, you get one mistake in this business and you just made it. And he wasn't putting me in trouble. He wasn't, it was a touch of sarcasm in it, but it never went away. And I'm still very attentive to details. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and there's <laughs> mistakes in performance, but then there's mistakes in behavior, which, you know, really does not get a lot of slack. We have the, I know you're an artist, mm -hmm. but sometimes there's a variety of people that don't necessarily care as much about their behavior as others. And part of the job is addressing that in a proper manner and learning how to spin things properly so you're not offensive, even though you really kind of want to kill them. You know, there are times like, I probably shouldn't mention names, but there's been a couple of situations in the studio where we were working for months with people that I just didn't want to be with, but that wasn't how I went to work every day. Right. They were paying the bills. So it wasn't a situation that you could say you've got to act. It's, it wasn't because of the money at all. And that gets back to what you were saying before. It was because it's the right way to do things and you want to do things the right way. That's really more important than the money. We were not getting paid a lot back then. CBGBs, when I was at RPM starting out, you know, it's embarrassing what we were getting paid, but that's okay. I still spent another 80 hours learning for no pay. And yeah, it, I was trained well. I'm lucky. Yeah. So, I mean, you have worked with so many people. I mean, I know you've worked with Laurie Anderson, you've mixed sound with Suzanne Vega, and you're also known to, and you are, you rightly known to just be amazing, particularly with female vocals, but all vocals. And I know you have your favorite things. You love your omnipressor and you have things that you like, but it's basically you. And how do you come around to that? Like, how did you develop that? thing is it is it more about hey i'm listening to the vocal you guitar player need to turn down <laughs> or is it i mean it's everything right it's all relative yeah i'm a big 
picture operator mm -hmm. and I'm also a really good listener and I really care. So I had already been paying attention as I was growing up in this industry towards the details of production and the details of what the artist wanted to convey. Because my real goal is to make sure they're heard the way they deserve to be heard so that they can be successful. I work in shadows. The let me think of how to say this. I don't know. The thing about the vocals, it wasn't just about them being a priority to be heard. It was about getting the way they were saying what they wanted to say and get the emotions across. Maybe that's a good way to say it. I want presence. I want things to be heard, including the breaths, which Jim Boyer educated me on. Um, it's about listening a lot and then figuring out what to do. And it ended up being really valuable to me as years went on, because obviously from the beginning, I was a producer and an artist who was doing live engineering. And that was where the money came in first. So I gravitated towards that. I was doing a lot of tours with great new bands. I've always been about new talent and they were some of the best years of my life. And then while I was working at CBGB's and doing that, when Suzanne Vega called and I started working with her, all of a sudden Luca hit and I'm mixing like Royal Albert Hall and Wembley and, you know, all these great places around the world. And you got to hear what she's saying. I mean, she's just this amazing writer and the lyrics are so important. So it was a good start for me to grow in that direction. And I listened back to some of the tapes from those shows and they're really good. So I guess I was doing okay. But it's it's about the big picture. And, and there have been artists that have called me because they noticed that and they Sometimes, like I know Paul Buchanan from the Blue Nile freaked out the first time I worked with him because I had different ambiences on his voice that were reflective of the record. And he knew I had paid attention to him and that put him at ease. There were other situations of vocals with Laurie Anderson. It was an amazing thing where I had to make her sound like a three-part harmony. I had to make her violin regenerate a million times. I had to make her sound like a man. And that was a scripted show, which I did for years with her various shows where I had effects boxes hooked up to MIDI pedals and I had a script and I had each vocal mic coming up in three channels and I had to ready the next voice for the voices there. My point is that you just have to, like we are getting, you know, the riot act on in today's world, you had to be ready for anything. Yeah, this is something that you can bring to people that I think few people can in quite the same way, because I don't know anyone who is as thoughtful about pre-production as you are. <laughs> and, and, and not just in terms of, I know a lot of producers who are thoughtful about pre-production. And then there are front of house people who go on the road with bands and they know their bands and they have pre-production for the show and they rehearse and they figure out what the moves are going to be on the board. But you have been in both worlds a lot. And I mean, if anybody needed one person to oversee every single thing from the moment of the song's inception to the minute it was filmed for live TV on stage, you're a person who knows every single step of that along the way in detail. I don't think I'm exaggerating. I think that anyone who knows you would agree with me. Thank you. You know, you're kind of a unicorn, really, in that way, because it, anyone would be really hard-pressed to find someone who could do one of those stages well. But you've run the whole gamut from every single part of anything someone needs to do to get on a stage, to make a record, to perform, if it's live for television or if it's being filmed, all, all of that. So I don't know where I'm going with this, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take me somewhere with that. 
I used to get hired by A&R people a lot. Mm -hmm. And back in the 80s and 90s, most of my friends were actually A&R people, but they would hire me for developing bands that they weren't sure about signing or not. They would hire me for preparing bands to do their album, even though there was a bigger name producer than me who was going to do the album. These things could be frustrating, but at the same time, I loved the interaction and I loved helping the growth. And it also applied to live. I got hired to help bands to perform better and to understand how their stage blend affects what the audience hears. So I wasn't always a turn your guitar down guy. I was looking at the mix and I, it's still very common to me today. If I'm at Terragram and I have a live band playing and I'll stand in the front of the stage with all the monitors off and the PA off and I'll describe to them what the people in the front row who ran in there early to get the best seats are going to hear because I've done many tours where they'll only hear one guitar or they'll only hear the bass. And I just, I'm not, telling people what to do. I'm just giving them years of input and trying to help that. So what you said is kind of true. And then it even relates to doing things like television shows. I've done obviously a lot of late night shows and Saturday night and all those things. When I'm there, I don't walk in as the front of house guy. I walk in as a, an overall guy that's going to make the show better. And I'll work on the monitors with the band. I'll work on the mix for the audience with the band. And I'll make sure they're real comfortable. And then I'll be in the control room with the engineers there producing the broadcast mix, which to me is really the absolute priority. But at the same time, it's only reflective of how comfortable everyone else is. So I won't be loading gear, but I'll be looking at every aspect the way you described. And I think, yeah, I'm proud of that stuff. I like it. I like knowing that they feel a little better knowing I'm around. Yeah, and it's a great gift because what you're really doing is you're making the connection between the audience and the performer invisible, where they can do their thing and they're not hung up by technical difficulties. You know, it's ease of operation for them. So that's a wonderful thing. Can you talk more about stories on the road? You work with the church extensively. <laughs> yes. In fact, I, I know that you once broke your wrist and you still showed up to mix a show. I'm a show must go on kind of guy. I broke both of them in Chicago at the Park West on a tour. And um, I did the show before I went to the emergency room. It's crazy looking back on it, but you know, I'm, I'm okay. And I did the rest of the tour. It was the only tour I ever did where the band was opening doors for me and loading my luggage in and out of my room and the whole nine yards. I mean, they, they really did what I needed to stay there. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of similar type of situations. You know, actually, if you're talking about the church, there was a week where I was working with both the church and Ian Hunter at the same venue. And it was four days apart. And all of my settings, that was on a digital console, all my settings were still intact as I went from one to the other. The major issue was that during the church show, the whole entire venue PA had completely cut out and died. And we got it going to finish the show. But I was pretty lucky when I got back four days later and they had fixed everything. They had redone their whole PA and all that kind of stuff. Some of the stories are things we don't really feel proud of or want to remember, you know? I'll tell you this one with Laurie Anderson. She had a lot of famous guests in her audience all the time, people that I respect. And um, I was very lucky. There was a time when she told me that Brian Eno wanted to meet me to find out how I did what I did. And I spoke to him and Bono for an hour, which that was the bucket list for me. But um there was another show. I did a lot of tape playbacks. There were not samplers and things back then. So I had two two-inch machines. And that was pretty funny at Carnegie Hall when there was a pretty old union guy sitting next to me making sure I never hit the record button because they make a ton of money for recordings at Carnegie Hall. And that was funny, but 
the not so funny one that I guess is funny now is when David Bowie was at one of our shows and right at the beginning of the show, one of my first tape playbacks, I went to queue up the next tape and I hit stop and all of a sudden there's dead silence. It's the first show to say you can't get messed up by that. So I just hit play, cracked up and kept going. And that was it. It was five seconds of silence. No one ever asked me about it, but it registered. Wow. Now, how about you... this one? Oh, okay. Suzanne Vega. Yeah. We're playing Vermont and an outdoor show on an Easter Sunday and Suzanne has a song called Tom's Diner and there's a line in it called the bells of the cathedral or that says the bells in the cathedral and during that line at the outdoor show on Easter Sunday we started hearing chimes non-stop from churches all over the place around us and that was amazing we just cracked up and went on that's so cool I love that well, also, you've worked a lot with Michael Swear and, and setting up the Terragram. And it was it was pretty groundbreaking for downtown L.A. to have one of those venues there. And it, it, it's an amazing venue. Can you talk about how that started and your crew that, you know, how nurturing you've been to getting a great crew there and how things are run? This actually really goes back to something you were talking about earlier. Um, when I first met them, it was 94. Mm hmm they had opened the Mercury Lounge in New York. And I went there for shows. And at that time, I was touring with a lot of people. But when I went there, I loved the place. So I just introduced myself to them. And I said, listen, whenever I'm in town, I'm not looking to take your sound guy's job. I don't care what you pay, but I'd be glad to sub in your venue and just do some nights here because I love it. So we met that way. And again, that reflects on it wasn't really about the money. They don't pay, you know, clubs don't pay that well. No offense to everybody I know. But it did evolve. And when they called me when they had purchased the property to look at it, it was interesting because I'd never built one from ground up with anyone before and they wanted input. And I heard a lot of reflections and a lot of things that sonically were not ideal, but Michael knows how to, and his extended family, they know how to build venues and they know what to look for. And audio was always a priority for him. He wanted the best sounding room in LA. And as we kept building, I was interacting with the people that he was building other venues with before. So I was learning on the job, but I was giving a lot. I know that. It ended up that I think, and I've gotten great input from engineers that we've ended up being a great room to mix. And when it gets down to the other things we've spoken about, it was always a priority for me to hire staff people. I need a great monitor engineer. I need a great lighting director. All the people I hire, of course, they had to be talented. But when I hire people, it's really just as important to me that I like them and that people are going to like them. It's all related to the same big picture that I'm describing about making the, the artist really be able to have fun on their gig. When I hire people, it's always been, listen, we need to be a break from the road because being on the road is tiring. And I just need to know that people will say, oh, we're playing Terragram on Friday. Cool. And feel better about it. And we get that a lot. And I've been really lucky to find the people that I, I mean, we've been closed for months, but I'm still talking to these people. They are my friends and my family. It, it's a beautiful thing being in an indie venue with a family type relationship. And it, it really translates to the artist in full circle. And that and the educational aspects of people coming in, you know, I'm older than many of the engineers. I don't tell people what to do at all, but I give input and I tell them if they don't want it to tell me. And that goes for things like support bands that never get paid attention to by a sound person or, you know, headline engineers that maybe I've been around longer than them. The interactions are really, it's all important to me. That's as important as any of the aspects of what I do. So, so are you using an analog mixing desk at the Terragram? At Terragram, that was Michael Swear's choice when he first called me. 
Mm-hmm. He was asking me about it. And of course, anyone that does what I do knows the difference between the analog and digital sounds. So I was really happy. And I'm an analog guy also with more history in that. So he let me put together a rack with a patch bay and tube compressors and stuff that I could work with. And our monitor console on the other side is digital. And that is really great because monitor engineers won't be turning analog knobs to try and find the settings they had for the previous band. They're just recalling everything they worked on at the sound check because we do give everybody sound checks and we really will come in earlier than we have to, to give better sound checks and to know that the monitor engineer can store those settings and recall them. Having said that, I'm not an anti-digital guy. When I talked to Michael originally, he asked me about it and my reply was really that even though there's a difference between the two sounds, you're not in an A-B situation where you compare them the night you get to a venue. You're not gonna hear the analog version and then only hear the digital version. You're gonna hear a great sounding show if it's done right with either console. So I did say to him, if he wanted to go digital, we'd make it work, but I was happy that he stayed analog for front of house. That's great. Yeah, the other advantage of having it digital for monitors is that he or she can walk around on the stage and stand in different positions and be making adjustments on the iPad from wherever they're standing, which you can't do if you have to be on the board. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so that's a, that's a handy thing. Well, that's just great. First, I want to go back a second, just talk more about Paul Buchanan, because he's such a hero. People just love the Blue Nile. And yeah, can you talk about working with him? I, w- I was a fan from the beginning. I'm, I'm one of them. Yeah. And you want to talk road stories. There's a couple of times when back then there were answering machines. And if you'd get home and you'd hear a voice you knew really well on your answering machine, you'd be doing like a Snoopy dance. Around <laughs> Lori Anderson's voice was on my machine. I freaked. And then the Blue Nile, <laughs> our first conversation was kind of surreal because I hadn't hung with a bunch of Scots before. And I think the first conversation, they spoke to me for about 20 minutes before I said anything, and I hadn't understood one word. So <laughs> I had to start the whole thing over, but <laughs> I couldn't believe it, and I was thrilled. And then when we met, they hadn't really toured and done things the way that they were planning on doing it. I saw their setup, and it wasn't really a good way to do it. So I went to Bearsville with them for two weeks, and basically we rebuilt their set in a way that, technically speaking, I'd be able to get it to sound like their record because their priority, they wanted to be exactly like the record. And Paul wanted to use the vocal mic from the record. And when you're doing live sound, you don't really want an omnidirectional microphone that picks up everything around it while your monitor engineer is trying to get monitors and you're trying to get front of house. But we did it. And um, you did it with the Omni on? It was uh, only an Omni mic. Oh, wow. Yeah, there was no choice. And yeah, we did it. It was kind of interesting for that tour. The majority of my, even though I wasn't doing monitors, I was sending the side film mix most of the time to sound like the record. I wanted a consistency so they were hearing what I was hearing because they then could do a lot of what they needed to do dynamically and emotionally. So even though there were no in-ears back then, but even though every person had a wedge for little touch-ups, the main mix was the side fills and it was similar to what I was sending. So that was really a good thing. I had never done that before either. 
And actually later on, Lori had me mixing her in-ears. She was taking the front of house mix on one tour. Cindy Lauper ended up singing a lot of her shows from the audience to my mix. So everything just kind of covers other bases as you learn them. Mm -hmm. But Paul's situation, when we went out, it was just so much love. I mean, the fans were like Robbie Robertson and Ricky Lee Jones and all these people. And, you know, everyone had been waiting for this tour for so long. And luckily for me, I got good sound reviews because we were getting the New York Times and all these places. And, you know, you're always nervous. Someone's going to say something bad, but they all said good stuff. So I know we're still friends and we still talk about stuff and a lot. We spoke this week and I got a lot out of that. It was great. That's wonderful. Um, can you talk a little bit about Thomas Walsh? I'm just glad you're talking about him because he's awesome. Yeah. I became a Pugwash fan when my friend Frank Donnelly, who has great ears for music, turned me on to them. And all of a sudden it was all I could listen to. And then I found out that Thomas has fans like my favorite people, like Jeff Lynn and Andy Partridge and Dave Gregory. You know, all the people that I love listening to are fans of his. In 2004, I was still doing a lot of work producing new bands and approaching record labels to get them deals and stuff like that. And I, I flew over to Dublin with my manager at the time, and I wanted to get them a deal in America. It wasn't even about producing them. It was like, people have to hear this stuff. And I saw a show live and met Thomas and hung for a week and everything was great. And we didn't have luck with that in America, which really bummed me out. But Again, the A&R and the record industry was always changing. And, I, you know, people had all different kinds of alternate goals. So I can't criticize anyone, but man, I would have signed that band. And turns out funny that a couple of years ago, some friends of mine at Omnivore Records over here in L.A., told me about this new band that they loved that they were signing. And it turned out to be Thomas. And it was great because I love the Omnivore people. Their ears are for a lot of stuff that is not as famous but amazing and there was so much of it and um that's what they were about and they chose an artist that i felt that way about that i was friends with it was it was pretty great that's fantastic yeah, yeah. and and that would tie in also with wild honey because you've, you've mixed a, a bunch of those shows so the wild honey shows turn out to be almost variety shows in terms of the artists that are involved although everyone's coming together to play one piece of work one album by a renowned artist that we love, and you've mixed a bunch of those shows. And one of them was a big star tribute with Jody Stevens. And can you talk about those shows? When the type of music that I spoke about before that isn't as famous but amazing, big star is kind of the epitome of that. And the fan base is religious about that. And again, I'm lucky with that. The Blue Nile was like that also. And the Wild Honey autism benefit shows are among my favorite things I've ever done in my life. They're real love fests and there's no big corporations or anything involved with it at all. It's hand to mouth and it's it's people donating their time and help to these causes. And with Rob Laufer at the helm on audio and the music arrangements and stuff, it's fun, man. And we end up, I say we, because I've been lucky to be involved with them. They are very much in my extended family now. I'm in touch with a lot of the people in the backing band are all some of the best musicians in LA and some of the best people in LA. They're there for a reason. And then all these people come in to play on the shows, whether it be Jackson Brown or Garth Hudson when we did the band. I mean, we have, we have members of the Bangles. We have members of Wilco. We have members of REM. We have members of XTC. We, every show is just people showing up and 
many of them are old friends also. And then we're really picky about making, you know, there's a lot of bands that do great tributes. And then there are others that just do tributes. We can't be anything but a great show where they feel these music because we're doing music that people live by. And, you know, there were funny circumstances. I remember when we did the Beatles White Album before the show, Ken Scott and Jeff Emmerich, who worked on the Beatles albums, were there. And they come up to me and they were like, what are you going to do tonight, man? And I'm like, I guess I'll go mono. And they like the joke. But meanwhile, I'm sitting here mixing this show with those guys watching my work. A little scary, but it went great. I can't say enough about that. And if anyone hears this, please look them up and give them money because it's it's really, really great. And I'm watching actually Paul Rock, who is the big daddy for this thing. I'm currently watching him post about interactions with his son who's autistic as he grows up. And I'm crying every day now because Jacob's actually doing, he can't speak and he was self-destructive, but he's growing now. And he's a teenager who's now asking for movies and doing reviews and giving opinions because he can type them. It's just so amazing to watch that. It's happening. So if you hear about it, help him out. That's great. And also, People can help you out too right now. You have some medical things to sort out from the time that we're doing this and you're going to be recovering for a bit over the new year and hopefully waking up to better days. You know, I'll also post what that link is if anyone has anything to contribute because, you know, as we know that there isn't a health fund for musicians and sound people and, you know, people who put on the shows and songwriters, people enjoy so much music. They go to see it live or they get it on Spotify and there's a whole bunch of things that happen behind the scenes to bring that music and enjoyment to people that they don't know about. The people behind the scenes don't have health care and don't have any kind of security whatsoever, especially during these COVID times. We'll definitely put that out there. Sometimes you get the word, you better accept. Thank you, Nick Harcourt. Yeah, let's talk about Nick, because you and Nick put a bunch of shows on for KCRW, live shows that were amazing. Can you talk about those? Nick, I had actually met for the first time in Woodstock with the Blue Nile when he was interviewing Paul Buchanan for his radio show in Albany, New York back then. We did not stay in touch, but when he first moved here to take over Morning Becomes Eclectic on KCRW, we became really good friends. And actually, just to throw this in, one of the first things I actually approached him about was Music Cares, which is a foundation for helping musicians that runs through Naris. And everybody can't help everybody, but it does exist. And I had reached out to him saying, what can we do to make some money for these guys? And we ended up becoming really good friends. These shows, it was just an amazing gig. We did shows with artists ranging from Coldplay and Death Cab for Cutie and Sia and Liz Fair, Damien Rice, Beck, Nora Jones, all these different people would be on the bill. It would be six bands a show, revolving stage. And Nick, being my favorite radio DJ, would always include new artists as part of the show because that is a priority. He finds things. Again, there was stuff he played this morning that I was shazamming on his show now on KCSN. But these shows were great. And each artist would play their set. We had a revolving stage and people would come and go. But 
Then there were crazy things like, I remember on one of the shows, Beck was doing duets with people. And, you know, when he called out Wayne from the Flaming Lips to do something from, I think, Saturday Night Fever by the Bee Gees or something. I forget what it was, but I think that's what it was. He's doing that. And then Sia comes out and then Nora comes out and all these people are doing these duets. Those are really goofy fun. You know, there's a lot of that. But it was another money raising thing for KCRW at that time. That's where he worked. And they were really successful. I miss those shows a lot. I've done it for six or seven years and yeah, they were great. Yeah. Well, maybe this would dovetail into this organization that you're working with now to save the stages. And maybe you can talk to us all about what we can do going forward in this uncertain era where we hope that venues will open up again, but we don't know when, and we don't know in what capacity that they will and how things will have changed. And I know that you're working with an organization to write the Bible of how you reopen. Can you talk about that? Because this is all very new and people need to know about it. The word is getting out on NEVA. NEVA is the National Independent Venues Association. There's a lot of classic venues and a lot of smaller venues that are in real trouble now that can't stay open and are you know going out of business. I mean, Again, this is in my industry. It's happening in restaurants. It's happening to everybody everywhere. So that's never forgotten. But focusing on us, how do we keep these classic venues open, involves a lot of lobbying for benefits and things like that. And it takes a lot of money to do that. I've been heavily involved with Neva since the beginning. I'm, I'm really glad they called me in. And it was a twofold thing. I was curious about the future. And I also realized that I know how to do shows and I'm going to be involved in the future and how we operate. So I was handling the production end of this quote Bible that you're talking about. And let me put it in perspective. What we were writing up was all the laws about reopenings are regional. We were not writing laws. What we were doing was trying to think of things that would come up and suggestions on how to deal with them. And it wasn't just about show production. I mean, we could be talking about you know, how the artist enters and how we sanitize their gear and how we, what do we do with the microphones that they're singing into and all these things. And what about the stage and who's touching who? And we handled all that stuff, but there's a whole bunch of other aspects like bartenders and bathrooms and admission. How do you line people up distance? So it's all a work in progress and we're still very active on it. And again, the grant that just went through I guess it was two nights ago, a lot of that money is helping our cause. So we're a work in progress. Like we did a bunch of filmings at Terragram, many of which were for the SOS Save Our Stages Festival that ran via YouTube. And they shot a bunch of artists, you know, their name artists like the Foo Fighters and things like that. And then there were artists that you don't hear of as much, but it was a great three-day festival. And we got a lot of visibility out of that on YouTube and moved forward on it. But after that, I got called for an event where people needed to film six bands on one day. And we had really written everything about reopening. So I then had to think of a way, well, how am I going to get six bands to come in and out of my venue without touching each other, without touching the film crew? How do I distance? How do I sanitize? And it was a very circular route that I came up with, and it worked really well. And all the people that I thought were going to be mad at me because I said, sorry, we got to do it this way for safety reasons. They ended up being thank you for doing that because they knew we were looking out for them. And everybody was just so happy to be back at an event. Those kind of things are amazing. I mean, everybody's hungry to be there and it feels good to do it. So as far as the future, 
I then incorporated, and it hasn't been formally written, maybe it will, maybe it won't, but I, I wanted to get a pre-opening into there, which is no audiences, because there's a lot of filmings and a lot of streamings going on now. Do people need the suggestions? I don't know, but I got them. You know, we did it. We had six bands in a day, very safe. And there's a lot of different things involved too, besides the regional laws, like we have 1200 capacity venues that were doing shows with 200. And I was interacting with them about how it went and what rules were being enforced locally and things like that. It's one of those things where you just pay attention to things as they come up and think about things before they come up if you can and just try to help, you know? And yeah. again, the SOS Festival, there were venues, I mean, I love Terragram, but the Troubadour is a real venue in LA and it's got that name and the Apollo in, in New York. These were places that need help. There's a lot of them and wherever you come from, you've got one. So it was a good thing. I love that involvement and I'm really proud of everybody that worked on it. That's wonderful. And it's something we really have to think about going forward because it's a whole industry that's being transformed right now. And in order to survive, we have to find new ways to get live performance out to people. So I'm going to ask you, I don't have a list from people. It would be like a Q&A. So I'm going to just have my own Q&A. I'm just going to ask you a bunch <laughs> of questions in anticipation of things that maybe people would ask, but that I genuinely am interested in. So I'm going to ask it like along the whole stretch of the whole line of everything happening. What would you tell a band? Let's start with an artist. An artist makes a record. An artist is going to go out to wants to play their songs, does not have tour support, has to keep things affordable. I guess this question does not apply to COVID because it doesn't apply to COVID. What's your advice? <laughs> the good reason. <laughs> What's your advice to that artist? Okay, you finished your record. Now you want to play it for people. Here's what you need to think about. I don't think there's a real answer to that question. I mean, I come from a generation where I would work with bands and develop them and bring them to A&R people for input that were friends of mine and then bring them after tweaking things to A&R people with a vision in mind. It's not like that really anymore. The expectation is that a lot of the legwork needs to be done by the artists. And this is my opinion. You may hear opposites from other people in my industry, but this is the way it seems to me. And that isn't me saying I'm blaming them for that. It's just the nature of the beast. And it's also really awkward because unfortunately people don't buy the way they used to. That was dictated by the public. That was not anyone saying that. That was the public deciding that they did not want to pay for music anymore. So how do you deal with that? As far as live playing, that is a definite in normal times of how to pursue and I'm not even always a fan of making a full-fledged record these days. I'm really a fan of attention and life expectancy of that attention. So how can you do things to get people to hear you? Forget a format. It's really any way. You know, there are people that aim for placement in commercials and make a living at it. That And I still Shazam commercials. Who's that? You know, there are people that do that for film and there are people that can make a living at that. There are other people that break even doing that. There are other people that can't get placements. But that is a place that it's heard by a lot of people. Obviously, today, there's a lot of online listening. How do you establish a bigger fan base? The normal way is to find out where you have a little bit of attention and go there and play and do that. But the B side of it, I think, is something I've spoken to you about in the past. And actually, you've been amazing to watch as you deal with this. There's a way to focus your creative energy in a variety of platforms that will get you the attention. And if you're getting attention because you posted, let's say, a good song, 
the way I see it is an album, if you put the album out there, everybody loves the album. But then in today's world, I think they're onto something else in a day or two. That's what you're trying to avoid. So I see it as maybe you record an album, maybe you put out a song at a time. And if you get some attention, maybe you try to stretch that attention per song while you have a stash in the background of other material. So for example, you've done some really great videos of things and it's not just creating a video for a song. Like we went to Terragram, you hired me to help you film video and audio that you made into multiple uses. You were doing interviews, you were doing things about the venue, you were songwriting and learning parts with people and capturing something that was really fascinating to see. That was about the song. And we did it for a bunch of songs and you did something great. And I do treat it as advice for other people, uh, putting out a song at a time and putting out related material to keep the attention. And then later on, you made a full-fledged record with those songs and additional features so people would want that. And again, in a normal situation, there's different formats. Personally, although I love vinyl and everything, I do think it's a boutique community that has a certain size, but they're real. And a vinyl record looks great on your merch table if you want to lug them around. But the point is, what can you have at shows that people will purchase? Because that will contribute. And obviously, mailing lists, all the, the usual suspects, again, you said it doesn't relate to COVID, so I'm generalizing being able to play live. Those are things that I think are really valuable for people to think about. Just be really open-minded. And I really, to be honest with you, I, I'm, I'm pretty consistent. I think you're hearing that in a lot of stuff I talk about. When I get even young engineers asking me how to focus, how can they get to be an engineer? My advice is to be really open-minded. It's like, if you're going to school to learn engineering or as a musician or whatever, learn everything you can even if it's not your favorite thing, stay goal-driven towards what you want to do. If you want to be a producer or a live engineer or, or whatever, or a, a musician, but at the same time, make sure you grab as much knowledge as you can, because in the future, very often it ends up being something else that interests you besides your original plan that also pays. And having that bedrock of knowledge, you know, I mean, I know singers and engineers that have made a mint on jingles, which years ago, my friends and I would laugh about doing Broadway. And now a lot of my friends are getting paid to be Broadway musicians and engineers. It can be any of the above. It's just about acquiring knowledge and being open-minded about how to use it. And that is what people have to do now when it comes to promoting themselves as artists also. And, you know, yeah. and there's an advantages to any approach, but you got to be open-minded. I, I think that's the most important thing possible. Yeah, that was a great answer. That was fantastic. Yeah, the other thing from the behind the scenes shadow, you know, people working who don't want to be in front of the lights, what would you advise in terms of attitude? And let's say somebody just got out of audio engineering school, you know, they learned they want to do live tours. Again, this isn't a COVID related thing, but you know, how does one go in? Do, do they drop their resume off? Do they knock on the door? Do they send emails? And then once they're in the door, how are you expecting them to behave and what are you looking for? From my managerial position at Telegram and hiring people, I do get approached. And there are also places that exist for people like that to reach out, whether it be a front of house and monitor engineer site on Facebook or whether it be Bobnet which is another source of people looking for people mm -hmm. and people looking to find them. When I get approached by things like that, it's really about 
attention. And what you say attitude is right. There are people that are overqualified sometimes that come in expecting more than someone can give them. If I see that attitude, then it's kind of a bummer. And I'll, I'll speak about it because I want to make sure I'm reading the person right. I mean, now we're looking at a situation where Neva is trying to help the venues even stay open. But the point is like when I took my job at Telegram, I was not going to make as much money as I made before, but I knew that walking in. I downsized and moved from a house to an apartment. I set my scale so that what he could afford, I could do. You know, that's related. You can't walk in with an attitude, even if you've been to better places, you have to really be part of it. And I do live by that. Like when engineers walk in, I don't care if I've had 50 years more experience than them and I can name drop, you know, forever. That's not how I look at people. I look at them as an engineer. I get thanked a lot for that, especially by women, which is pretty amazing. There's been a lot of times where people said, thank you for not treating me as a woman, which I don't get at all. I've been hiring great women engineers since CBGB's days, but I know what they have to deal with. And that kind of thing means a lot to me when it happens. You got to have some history on your resume of something if you're going to work at a venue like this. Again, I started as a janitor. So I just conducted myself well on the interview and that led to one thing led to another. But if I'm looking at things now for my venue, I need to see some sort of experience, not just being an engineer or a lighting director or whatever, but also so I know that they know how to interact with people because that is a priority, as I said before, you know, it's really crucial. Mm -hmm. It's a very good point that when you go into entry level somewhere you want to work, there's this feeling of when do I get to be the star here or when do I get to move up the ladder? And what I see is everybody wants a worker bee. They don't want it to be about any individual. They want to know that any kind of management or any kind of system can rely on everyone to show up and do their job, not draw attention to them for dramas, show up, be on time, be ready to go, do what needs to be done so that the work can be done. And the work isn't about you. You're part of a whole. And you know, our culture does not lend itself to not being about quote unquote me. You know, our whole social media platforms, everything, everybody's increasingly throughout the decades more and more about everyone has entitlement that the, the me deserves to have all of it, you know, but in order for things to function, we need more people like you. We need more people who are looking out for what could go wrong figuring out ahead of time, you know, looking for the flaw in the plan. So you don't show up there, you know, and say, oh, we didn't plan for this. And, you know, it's funny because I'm the person who packs at the last moment. And artists typically are that way. Like we have to become more grown up and you're, you're like the grown up in the room. Yeah, you don't have to become more grown up. It's like, you know, we understand artists. Otherwise, I won't be hiring those people. You know, it's just really important for everyone to understand the other side. I think one of the things I bring to the table, as you said at the beginning, is that I've been there and I've been them. So even the people I'm working with, I'll explain how I'm hoping that they will conduct themselves. But at the same time, I do also. I yeah. don't like being looked at as their boss or anything like that. It's just we're all here doing this thing. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And also... You know, it's a two-way thing. You know, if you have somebody who's on an entry-level position and you hire them and they treat you right, treat the venue right, 
then they earn your respect. Then you watch out for their back. And I, I know you do that with your crew and it's very important to you and to them. And, you know, nobody works well underpaid and not enjoying where they're working. So you're someone who understands that. So I just want to know when you went to business school and you said it really helped you, what did you learn in business school that helped you? I wish I could say I used it as well as I should have. Mm -hmm. uh, I came out of Stuyvesant with lots of calculus credits and all this. I was a math whiz in science. That was a math and science high school. I didn't know what I wanted, which is why I went to Albany State. I made Ivy League schools and other schools like that, but my parents were paying and I didn't want to waste their money if I didn't know what I was doing. Having said that, with the math skills and everything, all of a sudden I was learning about business basics and the way I look at education maybe is a little different than most people. Like I only took one course ever in audio engineering. It was one hour, I think, at the new school in New York. What I used it for was to learn what I had to learn about. And then I started reaching out to learn, which is how I ended up being a janitor, learning the other 80 hours a week from people that were great. That pre-production aspect is important. I got sidetracked from the original question, but again, a big picture guy. And I think it's probably one of the things Michael Swear likes about me is that I'm always aware of the business end of it. My crew understands me. We can't do this because of this money. We can't do that because of this money. Okay, I can allocate this now. Okay, let's not do that till later. There's a whole routine of there's X amount of dollars that the owner has. He doesn't really want to do tech maintenance every day. How do I maximize? And I get a lot out of the people that work for me, but it's only because I give them a lot and you've heard me looking out for them. Well, they give it back. So I have people that are there helping, but it's all based on the business. Like when Michael hired me, I didn't think for a second he was going to pay me a third of what I made on the road. But he also didn't think I would quit the road because, you know, he's like, you sure? You know, and I'm like, yeah, it's about timing. But it, the bottom line is you have to be aware of the finances of people. And, you know, it's also helpful to watch it as all the work with Neva and this COVID and the venues and everything. You have to be creative business-wise to try and figure out how are we going to stay in business. So a lot of my creative energy on the business level is focused on the business of putting on shows and, you know, and running venues and things like that. You can't just give your thoughts. You have to be aware at all times. And that business sense is ingrained and that's been valuable. So college to me was like that one course. I didn't go to every class. I was going to shows every weekend. You know, I was seeing Springsteen in like 74 and all these places following him around or, you know, I was a deadhead for a while, you know, whatever it was. And I was going to school. I was growing up and I was going to school. It was just one of those things. But the business sense taught me how to learn it as I went along and pay attention to it. Yeah. And, and again, I say you're the grown up. Um, respect for the money, respect for the venue has to keep running. And it applies to artists also like, you know, no one's buying anymore. What do we do? So I acquire knowledge well, and I'm very aware as things develop. The involvement with Neva was very much business related to Telegram for me because I wanted to know about things in the future. One of the things I brought to Neva, one of my priorities when I started working for them was to have it at the very beginning of the document that these things need to be discussed before the contract is signed. That came from having some business 
things. I don't need a band showing up and they're ready to play, but we didn't do what we were supposed to do on the safeties. They'll still be owed money and we won't have a show. You don't want your production manager arguing with the tour manager on day of show. You want to have a great day. So part of what I brought to that conversation, there's a bunch of bullet points that go into contracts for people that are booking artists. And I wanted my team to be aware of things that came up for the future so that many things could be ironed out before the gig was booked. And then hopefully, there's always going to be something, but hopefully the majority of the things will just be done already and we'll have a good day at work on the show day. You know, yeah. that, that business sense is everywhere. Every artist is now having to think business, you know? Yeah. I'm glad I had it. Business and safety. Well, here's a burning question. I mean, maybe all artists ask this burning question, but you know, the new currency, the new way of getting paid is in attention. It's really how many followers, how much engagement, how many people are in your email list? What is the bubble of people, your fan base that you can directly talk to who's interested in something that you have to provide them? Yet people don't really pay that much for music, even though music takes a great deal of time to come up with and record and play and manufacture and mail. Artists do a lot of side things. Sometimes they paint and they sell their paintings or they make jewelry and they sell their jewelry or t-shirts. What is the future, particularly in COVID, what is the future for keeping the arts alive when so much of everything is free? And, and what is the reward? What is the point of having attention? So let's say you have you know, 20,000, 50,000, 200K followers. And it's like, woohoo, you know, I'm really popular, you say. All these people are following me. Well, first of all, artists know this and brands know this, but maybe fans don't know this. But on Facebook, maybe you bring 20,000 of your fans to the platform of Facebook, but then Facebook makes you pay to show your posts to those fans. So it's a terrible business model for artists because you're building a fan base, you're handing the data over to Facebook, and then Facebook won't actually let you talk to them directly without paying them for them to give you access to the people you brought there. It's it's someone's good business model. Yeah, it's not good for the artist. And yet we're living in a Facebook, Instagram, social media culture. And until someone comes along that is compelling enough to make people jump off that boat and get into another one where they feel like they're treated better until some big fish comes along and gobbles that one up too, you know, we're kind of at the mercy. And it used to be that we could get in a car, go play here, go play there, get a notebook and hand it out to audience members. They put your email down and you play for 50 people and that's 50 more bands that you can directly write. So, you know, that's old school, like the way folk singers used to do it, jump a train and go play somewhere on a street corner. And that's how they built things, kind of the way politicians would do it too. But now we don't have that. So how do we keep this thing alive? That is a great question. And I don't know if people always want my answer, but I'll give it to you. It's very personal and it's about your expectations. What are your needs and what are your expectations? Like I know for me, I don't have an ascribed religion, but I consider myself a religious person because I need to look in the mirror and like what I see and it affects how I act. You as an artist, the recommendation I say a lot is what turns you on? What do you need? What, you know, there are people, yes, most of it is about getting acknowledged and getting heard today. And every artist wants to get heard. 
There are various avenues to get heard. If you don't care about making money, then that will be enough for you. You'll get heard, you'll interact, you'll feel it. And that can include both online presence. It can include being on stage. What do you, what do you really need? There are people that have other jobs and are still, you know, I'm not saying like mom and pop store musicians. I'm talking about people that are really talented that, you know, do it. But at the same time, if they get an audience and they can do live shows periodically, maybe that is enough for them. And when they look at the big picture of life, they want to relax and know their bills are paid. There are other artists that need more than that. And it is a challenge and you, you have to be mentally prepared to do the work involved and also what is the work involved. So you chose a direction where you were creating. You need to focus your priorities on if it's something that is giving you a better life. I mean, that's really how I look at it. Again, for me, it's always the big picture of life it's, is the priority. I know that if I have to do something else so that I'm covered, you know me, I, I will worry if my rent isn't going to be covered. I'm always a step ahead when it comes to that because I ain't going to enjoy the other stuff unless I know I can eat and sleep, you know? But everyone's very personal about these types of choices. It could go any of the above, you know? It's more along the lines of just making a good relationship with something you're interested in and then seeing where the branches lead to, you know? Yeah, this has been great. Robin, thank you so much for doing this. You want to know something? What? It couldn't have come at a better time. I just really need a distraction right now. It's like I saw this dumb movie the other day and there's a quote that stuck out. What's the worst part of a roller coaster? The line waiting to get on it. That's it's great. like, that's where I am right now. I feel great, but there's a little bit of stage fright that kicks in every couple of minutes and I don't need more days. When I had spoken to all the survivors and all the other doctors to put my mind at ease about direction. That was the first time I was able to actually notice how much people were doing for me. And then I just started crying. But I, before that, I was just doing pre-production, pre-production. I was finally ready for the show. I got to take a deep breath and see what the hell was going on. It's a freak show for me, but I'm lucky. Yeah, it's good. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. You know what I always like when I can't have solids is farina. And it just makes me so happy because it reminds me of being a little baby. I used to eat that stuff too, man. Farina every day. There's probably a bunch of sugar in there. It's probably why I like it, but yeah. this is so great. I yeah. fun. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to episode two for season two of Song Chronicles. I want to thank my guest, producer, engineer, Robin Daynar, for all his great stories and insights. Since this interview, Robin has had some unexpected health issues arrive, and the pandemic has been hard on all musicians. If you're able to donate, Google search Robin Daynar GoFundMe or click the link on our website. Join me next time for a conversation with Jeff Trott. Jeff has had an amazing award-winning career as a songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and producer. He's best known as being Sheryl Crow's frequent songwriting collaborator. On Song Chronicles, you'll hear the behind-the-scenes stories told by music makers and music industry insiders themselves. You can check out the dozen episodes from our first season which includes interviews with Gloria Estefan, J.D. Souther, Kathy Valentine, Peter Case, Gail Ann Dorsey, and more. If you're enjoying the podcast, leave a review on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you stream. We greatly appreciate your feedback. 
I'm your host and producer, Louise Goffin. <laughs>